Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Hale Institute podcast. I'm Tymon Klein, Director of Scholarly Initiatives at Hale at New St. Andrews College. And I have again with me this week another special guest, uh, this time Eric Enlow. And um, Eric, we've, we've talked some, uh, we've, we've been in contact a little bit um, previously, and, and you know, I, did, I figured we had to have you on the podcast because you um, do scholarship and have been doing for a long time that's, that's right in the wheelhouse of Hale, the Hale Institute, and um, have lots of, lots of thoughts and insights on, on various subjects that are adjacent to, to the things we, we talk about a lot. So I, I had to have you on. And I thanks so much for making the time to do this. I'm thrilled about about Hale and all that you're doing and will do. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So, so for the just to um, many people may be aware of uh, you and some of your work too. I mean, you've you've published it, um, you know, various journals, especially specialists would have would have, would have read. Um, some of our nerd friends have probably read. But introduce yourself to the to the general audience. Sure. Uh, some of you about your background and what what you're doing right now. Sure. I, I started out in the U.S., uh, went to Yale University and then uh, Washington University School of, of Law in my hometown of, of St. Louis. And uh, I clerked on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals and then started practicing uh, mostly in uh, international intellectual property law. And I had the uh, really a, a calling out of legal practice sort of as my practice matured as a as a litigator to go and and uh, work on a, a project to start a, a christian law school in east asia the, the very little witness to christian legal theory in uh, east asia um, and so the idea was to start a law school there that would train up christian lawyers uh, create a, a knowledge base of of christian understanding of, of law and legal education there. And we just celebrated our, our 20th anniversary uh, last year. So it's very exciting. And the school's school is doing, doing very well. And, uh, I, I'd like to hope we're having a, a big effect on, on the lawyers that we were training, training there to give glory to God. Excellent. Um, and, and there's several things in there we could pull on, but the first one is uh, something you already mentioned, and it's it's the subject of of some of your work as well, which is this idea of, of Christian legal theory, right? So, um, just broad strokes when when you say that, you know, what what do you mean by it? What do you have in mind? Um, kind of introduce people to that concept. Sure. So our our law school, which I should probably mention the name, uh, Handong International Law School, of which I've been the dean for the last. 13 years and a professor there for 20. Uh, we're, we have a very uh, particular notion, which is uh, as Protestants, as members of the Reformed tradition, that we want an understanding of, of law that arises from a desire to follow Christ in faith, to, to give him glory, uh, that's grounded in the word of, of God that is responsible to the the subject of of law which involves various species of of practical rationality and counsel and prudence um, and so you know the easy the easy way to, to to put it i think would be to say that christian legal theory uh, is a a view which is the basic meaning of of the word theory it is a a view of the relationship between 
Christ and the law. Uh, and anything else, I would I would maintain uh, strongly. Uh, that is to say, a view of the law that doesn't include Christ in it is is deficient from a, a Christian, certainly a Reformed or, or Protestant point of view. Right. So um, I think I think that that should make some intuitive sense to uh, to most of our lis- listeners who are typically Christian and and Protestant. And I want to get into to both elements of, of this because. On the one hand, we have the, the Protestant tradition, um, and, it, and it has particular contributions to jurisprudence, to legal thought that, that are rarely, you know, have been rarely recognized. Um, there's, of course, you know, some historical work has always been going on, on you know, in this regard, whether it's, you know, Harold, Harold Berman, John Witte, I mean, some of those guys were doing things uh, a while back to and I, uh, try to tease some of this out. Yeah, and I, think, yeah. I mean, I think just to, to jump in there, I, I, I think, you know, we are, we're particularly blessed. We're at a, a real pivotal stage because of the work of hmm. Berman and, and Witte. Um, I'd, I'd throw in some other people with respect to particular doctrines like uh, Gordley and DeCoke on contract law. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the... The clear vision that, that anyone who is following the responsible historians today can see is that Christianity largely and uh, Protestant, the Christian, the, the Christian church of the Reformation uh, in its Anglican and continental forms uh, had determined the, the position of, of modern law, both uh, mm-hmm. in the, the Anglo-American uh, order and in the civil law mm-hmm. tradition, the part that is spread throughout mm-hmm. most of the, you know, the part of the world that wasn't that wasn't part of the British Empire, uh, both of them mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. are decisively determined by interaction with Christian theology, and there's mm-hmm. and and yeah. specifically with the Reformation, and there's mm-hmm. um, if you if you are wondering sort of whether Christianity uh, can have an effect on on law, uh, the answer is certainly that it can as a matter of history. And if you wonder whether it, it did, that is to say, to understand what it is today, do you have to know its relation to Christian theology? The answer is yes. I said theology, but I, I would say, I, it would probably be better to say uh, Christian religion, Christian piety is as much an, an important part of it as uh, the, the formation of, of the person, the person uh, for legal education purposes, the person, the person of the advocate, uh, but also the person mm-hmm. of the judge. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just theoretical; it's something that arises out of out of the the formation of the individual, the humbling of the, of the mm-hmm. individual. Uh, and the answer's in. It's clear, and only people who don't want to be responsible to the history can maintain otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something you said there. I mean, is something. Um more broadly, even I think it, it, it's, it's become obvious to me. I don't know if everyone else agrees, but you know, for in, in a liberal society or society conditioned by by you know twentieth century liberalism in particular, this cuts across both law and and uh, political life. You know, there there was a sense in which um, because of its high confidence in a sort of predetermined procedure, almost like an algorithm that you can just push go on the personnel that you insert into the system um, 
in their persons don't don't matter so much. The whole point is to run it like a McDonald's where you can have anybody kind of jump in the system and, and the thing keeps working. Um, but what much of what you're saying there is that a Christian understanding and a historical Christian understanding of these things um, is acutely aware of the, the significance of the, of the people involved, their piety, their virtue. And without that, without that kind of formation that, that must begin much earlier than their entry into public life, um, it doesn't really matter what ideals you could have that, that are supposedly behind the way things are working. And you see a great witness to this. I mean, in every state in the United States, to become a lawyer, you have to do two things. You have to demonstrate legal knowledge, which you do through the bar examination. Mm -hmm. But you also have to uh, demonstrate character and fitness. Mm -hmm. you, you, you have to demonstrate that you have the, the general character that's required to be a lawyer. And I think originally this word fitness, the, the agreement between the person and the office of being an attorney or a, a counselor or a lawyer. Uh, it, it, this is stuff coming straight out of vocational understanding, uh, mm -hmm. coming out of you know the, the difference between a, a general rightness and the rightness of your doing a particular thing. It's become incredibly degenerate, but there's still a witness that was shaped by, by Christian thought. And, you know, I mean, the modern idea that the law is just a, a technique, that it, why, why then the emphasis on character? Why is half the, the requirement of becoming a lawyer that you demonstrate character and fitness? Um, yeah. And, it, and, you know, the answer goes all the way back to uh, when we look in the scriptures, when you're looking at who's to be called forth as a, a judge in the Bible, mm -hmm. the, the basic requirement isn't that you are the smartest person. It isn't that you, you got the highest LSAT score. Um, mm -hmm. It's that you're a person of appropriate character, that you're righteous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you know when you fall away from that, that biblical vision, and I, I, I have to say, anyone who thinks through uh, who you'd like to be judged by or who you'd like to give you counsel. Uh, lawyers give counsel. Would you go to somebody you believed was unrighteous, was unvirtuous for counsel? No, you, you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You would be terrified of that. And, right, and rightly so, because unrighteous mm -hmm. judges and counselors do horrendous things, and it's terrifying to be in their hands. And this is a biblical concern, and the Bible is guiding us to what is a, an obvious and appropriate natural concern that we all, we all share. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, as, as someone who not, not that long ago had to go through uh, not only the, the LSAT and, and applications to law school, but then the, uh, the, the bar examination process, the most strenuous out of all of it, I would say, in terms of time, is uh, is the character and fitness exactly. aspects that you have to? I mean, they go through your entire life. You have to, you know, try to go back and figure out every address you've lived at so they can do background checks. And, and imagine, you know, all this, all this. Stuff. Imagine if we retained yeah. any of the of the sense of what the character and fitness property should be and what originally was closer to, which is something much closer to the way we would identify the character and fitness of a a minister of of God's word and a gospel. Mm -hmm that we would be concerned about all manner of things. And I have to say that mm -hmm. the kinds of things that the character and fitness boards can look into are pretty illiberal. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the drug use, the drinking, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, bank, the fact, you know, bankruptcies. Um, mm-hmm. But with just a little bit of tweaking, and I, I don't even know that it would be, it would even by our standards today, you couldn't make a strong case for it. Why not investigate things like courage and mm-hmm. temperance and justice? Why not? Mm-hmm. Why not? You can think in one sense of the bar examination, the, the test of legal knowledge is dealing with prudence, but uh, there's really a much deeper kind of, of prudence uh, than mere legal knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't we investigate those kind of kind of things? And you know, it has to do with the size of the system and the difficulty of coming up with with standards. But um, mm-hmm. obviously, that's what we would want. And mm-hmm. it's a deficiency of our system that we can't have a, a deeper investigation of it. And part of Christian legal education and Christian legal theory is saying, if you really want to be a good lawyer, you need to be brave. You need to have self-control. You need to have uh, justice in the broad Christian sense of being able to uh, love your, your fellow man and love God. And you need to be you need to be prudent. You need to have your eye on the practical goods that are are given to your responsibility and the means of carrying them out in a in a proper manner. And mm-hmm. we, you know, obviously, we've ditched those kind of things for a an idea of law as as concepts and techniques. And you know, this is horrendous. Uh, mm-hmm. Law students are filled by the example of. By the, by the mode of instruction, they are led to believe that what will make them good lawyers is merely knowing stuff. Now, as a lawyer, you have a duty to know stuff. You, you're not hired as a counselor simpliciter. You're not hired merely to counsel people. You're hired to give them counsel about, about law. And so mm-hmm. uh, if you're doing that, you, you, of course, need to know a great deal about law. But mm-hmm. knowing law is no good. If you lack the the courage to overcome uh, the the whole range of external things that could lead you not to give good counsel, things like offending your client, things like taking unpopular mm-hmm. positions, if you lack the, the temperance to control yourself, so you're not led by greed, you're you're not led by greed either as the sole motive for pursuing the profession or greed in the way that you manipulate your your clients into bringing lawsuits that aren't really in their, their best advantage. If you, if you don't really understand justice, how to, how to love it and how to speak of it, you can't dedicate yourself to the, the profession in the way that you, you need to. You can't really be convincing about justice unless you uh, have it in your character, if it, unless it oozes out of your pores, unless, unless you're practicing it all the time. The, just the burden of the hypocrisy of it destroys lawyers who argue one way in court and believe another way in their in their heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's. I mean, you do get that sense um, in the in the profession even today. There is a sense sense of demoralization and 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 cynicism. And really, and so. I think much of it is rooted in in exactly what you're talking right. about, right? But the, but then that is. By some people, by some corners of the profession, held up 
as it's as this own kind of false virtue that the fact that you are so detached from you know from the world as you enter into the you know the the practice and you you don't care about any anything it's it's you know purely a matter of of, uh fealty to the procedure and to you know the text in some sense whatever you want to say and and you know leave everything else at the door is is presented as the true um even in conservative circles the true judge is one who's just completely aloof almost yeah i um which which is very strange well i mean you put your finger on i think a, a a major distraction for christian legal theory over the last uh, 50 years which which has been the the portrayal of our our battle as one with a legal theory positivism that is to say the law is merely what the the government enacts that's a that's a gross mm-hmm. simplification of the best versions of positivism but it'll it'll mm-hmm. it'll do um, and that we we are we as uh, conservatives or as those who are opposed to the current reigning uh, orthodoxies um, all we want to do is push a, another theory of, of law uh, mm-hmm. that if we if we began to be originalists or if we began to, which is originalism itself ironically a form of positivism of course yeah it's just it's yes. a, an argument about how you interpret law not it has nothing to do with a rival theory deposits it is positivistic, mm-hmm. saying you're not being positivistic mm-hmm. enough, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or you know the other major branch of conservative legal theory, law and economics, which is just utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. It's just saying yes. you you're utilitarian, but you're not you're not utilitarian enough. You're you're dumb utilitarians mm-hmm. as opposed to mm-hmm. smart utilitarians like like us. Um, both of which are fine. I mean. It's a fine point that if you're going to be a positivist, you should be a good positivist, and if you're going to be utilitarian, mm-hmm. you should be a good utilitarian. Nothing, nothing wrong with that, um, but it has nothing to do, nothing to do with with Christian legal theory, which really, you know, begins at the level. I, I would say it begins with the, the level of the uh, individual lawyer, which is. How do I relate what I'm doing to Christ? And if Christ teaches us to be positivists, we should be positivists. If Christ teaches us to be utilitarians, why we should be utilitarians? The the, the question is is what Christ teaches us to do faithfully, and the the source of of uh, our complacency with the current system or our lack of complacency with it should come from whether we're being faithful to to Christ in it. And, and so this is this to me is the the right way to view the last sort of fifty wasted years of of Christian jurisprudence that has I think in a sense been ended at one level by a Berman and Witty at the academic level, but was always apparent. Which is the the great question for us as Christians, called Christians, is how do we give glory to Jesus Christ? How do we remain faithful to Him in the way that we we practice law, and mm-hmm. um, you know a good. There may be a good positivist answer to this. You know the the two kingdoms theories try to provide a good positivistic answer to this, which is mm-hmm. they think Christ doesn't want us referring to him in the way that we practice mm-hmm. law. That he's he's divided the kingdoms, and 
again, this is a simplification. I don't, I'm not trying to win an argument here with the two kingdoms folks. Just, I, I don't, I reject them, but I'm not trying to win an argument. Just, mm-hmm. they're, 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 and this is not, not new, by the way. This goes back uh, in various ways, but that Christ doesn't want us thinking about him when we're practicing law. He wants us thinking about mm-hmm. certain natural or, or positive features of, of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Justice Scalia put it, put it very nicely when he said, you know, there's, there's no Christian way to cook a hamburger. Mm-hmm. And there's no Christian way to decide a, a legal case. <laughs> and uh, this this is as I think it's it's about the level of argumentation that that the uh, it's a good summary of the argument. And I, I do think, mm-hmm. you know, you should ask uh, if you want to know how you how Christ relates to law. A good way to begin is how does it relate to the way you cook a hamburger? That's I think Scalia's challenge mm-hmm. is a fair one, which it, mm-hmm. it just seems like certain activities uh, you you don't have to think about Jesus Christ to to do them, and immediately I think you know you should array against that uh, our the the scripture and, and and Paul's teaching to us in scripture that everything we do should be done for the glory of Jesus Christ, and if we if we receive that from the Word of God that everything should be done for the glory of Christ. Uh, then we should ask ourselves, well, how do you do everything for the glory of, of Christ? Scalia must be wrong, not only with respect to law, but also with respect to a hamburger. And I mean, this is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I agree. You probably don't have to, uh, in, in every moment of your life, uh, say, think, uh, conceptualize your next move in reference to a concept of, of Jesus Christ. But this gets back to to the issues of the formation of the of the person. But in everything you do, in every action that you do, you can be shaped by your knowledge of Christ and give expression to your knowledge of, of Christ, not in words, not in uh, necessarily in if someone asks you, I can trace it back to a concept I have of Jesus Christ. But in everything I do, I can give glory to Christ. And this is the way we need to begin to think about laws as well. Is that that's getting yeah yeah no, getting theoretical in a way, but that's that's no. This is this is good. This is good. This is where where we should take it. So this is so maybe this is the the uh, you know in some sense the proposition uh, it, using the illustration of the hamburger and and judging and law uh, with in conversation to some extent with people who. Um, many of our listeners, because many people are, I'm, I'm assuming, are, you know, in, in this sort of two kingdoms, radical two kingdoms sort of paradigm, uh, because for a while it, it's been the only game in town uh, in, in this sort of continuation of trying to uh, think about the Protestant tradition in particular, politics and, and law. So the, the question I would have in the, in the analogy is, well, you know, what are the what are the ends of the activities? Because because even though the the illustration is is working, um, you know, the end of, of cooking the hamburger in the most literal kind of sense as well to to, you know, enjoy it, but but also to feed yourself. Um, and so you can accomplish that end maybe with, um, as you said, maybe you can do it with minimal thought of, of Christ at the time, depending on how sanctified you are, I guess. Um so, you know, I'm, I've certainly cooked many hamburgers without thinking uh, one bit about Christ and his atonement or anything right. like that. Um, 
but then when you get to, to judging, to, to law, to ordering society justly, that's, that's the end for the, for the good, right? Um, and the, the question I always have with the two kingdoms guys in the sort of bifurcation of, of the Decalogue is, is that move even possible? Um, can you really do justice to man without doing justice to God? Can you conceive of the second table as we've artificially, uh, you know, sort of separated them? Can you conceive of that with without conception of the first table? And I find that even in their own arguments, it doesn't take them long to start, you know, when they're trying to talk about material conditions and human relationships before they're all of a sudden referencing creational realities, such as the image of God or what, what have you, to provide dignity as a basis for doing justice. And there, you're, it seems to me, you're right back into the original question. And in fact, they are operating with some, even as they're somewhat denying it, with reference to the first table and to justice to God at the same time. Yeah, the, way, the way I think about it, um, if, you, if, you read, if you read biblical law seriously, I mean, say, if, you, if you actually investigate biblical jurisprudence as a, a jurisprudence, and you, you ask, um, as Jesus was wanting, you know, what, what's the greatest commandment? What's the summary of the law? If you ask these kind of questions, if you ask, what is the, the motivation for obeying the law that that is taught in Mosaic jurisprudence. I, I wrote an article about this called uh, Mosaic Commands for Legal Theology, which is about a, a set of scriptures in the, in the Bible where Moses says, someday your son is going to ask you, why do you obey the law? It's peculiar. Why do you do these things? And he says, tell your son, we were slaves. And God delivered us from slavery. Mm -hmm. And we follow the law because God did these things for us. God was gracious to us. And mm -hmm. this, I, this, I think, this is a, a law in the scriptures, which basically says, when you do legal theory, as say you, when you ask, why do we obey the kind of laws that we obey? You, you trace it back to your experience of God's grace. That's what I would say would be the, the equity, so to speak, of that, of that law. And of course, the Decalogue is set up in exactly this way. The, the, over, yes. the overarching prologue of, of the law uh, that, that, that explains every command is the exact same thing that Moses said to tell your, your children when they ask why, why you obey these laws. Uh, because the Lord our God uh, delivered us out of the house of bondage, out of slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if if you can't give that answer, uh, my my belief is that you can't really explain the shape of any legal system. Mm -hmm. And there there are a couple of ways of understanding why this is impossible, but I, I think the easiest one of them is a, a problem that that Kant wrestled with very mightily is Immanuel Kant, the 19th century mm -hmm. rationalist uh, ethicist, is he said basically, you know, uh, at a theoretical level, I can come up with all sorts of arguments about what you should do and why you should do them. And it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty good. But I have a, a really hard time explaining why somebody should feel moved to do it. You know, I, I can perceive rationally that two plus two equals four, 
But if somebody says to me, why shouldn't I say that two plus two equals five if I want to? I mean, what the fact that I know two plus two equals four uh, contains no further axiom that says I should always believe what I know to be true or I should always say what I know to be true. Um, and it, he, this was a, a problem of the, 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 the uh, motive, not just the motivation to obey the law, but how do you perceive the law as obligatory? How do you, when you mm-hmm. see it, how do you see it as obligatory? I, I see the tree outside my window. I know it's there, but it has no obligation for me. I can see the moral law, mm-hmm. know that it's there, but in what way does it become obligatory? And this is Kant said, well, to do that, you need to go read my, my second critique on, on practical uh, rationality. And he's, I mean, if you read Kant's practical rationality, if you read his account of human action, then he says, while as a matter of metaphysics, I can't prove God's existence, as a matter of, of explaining why, why I do things, I must believe as a, a dictate of practical rationality to make action comprehensible. I need God mm-hmm. and I need God to be gracious and I need God to deal with the fact that my will is weak and I need God to deal with the fact that good people go, uh, go unrewarded and bad people prosper. I, I, need, I need an idea of final judgment um, without, without basically, and he sort of runs through the whole apparatus of pietistic German Lutheran theology, without this sort of whole apparatus, even though theoretically I might perceive many moral things, they never really become rationally obligatory to me. Hmm. And I, you know, I, there's plenty to criticize about, about Kant, but uh, I think he stands as a, a witness to a, a problem that's very real and an answer which happens to agree when I say happen, I mean that sarcastically. It, for, for darn good reasons, anyone who really thinks through this issue will come to the same position as, as Moses, which is uh, we trace our, our real sense and understanding of law back to a, a, a ground experience of national and personal grace, of mm-hmm. a universal knowledge of God, a knowledge of him not as sterile and far away as the 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 deus hold but as as active and sustaining mm-hmm. and interacting with us and judging us and ruling over history and leading us to uh, an immortal end uh where mm-hmm. where what we have done matters um where where he will make up the deficiencies of our of our nature uh in a variety of ways mm-hmm. and you know, I always laugh at liberals because they're always leading on Kant in one way or another, but they just they ignore his views on 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 religion as a necessary part of the practical intellect. And mm-hmm. I I believe that the scriptures teach us, and uh, I, I, I Kant happens to agree with this, so good for Kant. Um, a, a belief in 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 someone very much like. Jesus Christ, uh, in someone very much like our our Father in heaven, uh, is necessary to rationally speak about the law. And the incoherence and our dissatisfaction with modern law comes from the fact that for reasons of, of politics, 
we we have done away with that. And mm-hmm. and I I think the two kingdoms folks, the radical two kingdoms folks, are uh, they're they're just wrong as as a matter of the scripture. They're wrong as a matter of human experience. They're they're wrong, and they're wrong in ways that are really decisively bad for us. And you know, mm-hmm. there there's a word that I really like. It's called uh, Americanism. It's a, an old mm-hmm. idea of a heresy, which is define your your commitment to America is so strong that that you believe that Christianity must agree with the political norms and ideas of America to be right. And this could be either be as a theoretical heresy, it would be ridiculous if someone were to say, you know, clearly, you know, the, the laws and constitution or what have you of the United States is, is so held up to us in history that we know Christianity must either agree with it or be erroneous. That would be, it would be nonsensical to say, but practical Americanism, uh, using Ameri- uh, our our understanding of right that we gain from growing up in America, our idea of, of what's appropriate and just, um, and then deducing what the Bible must mean or, or what our political theology mm-hmm. or our moral theology should be, it is absolutely rampant. And what we should be doing as Christians is saying, hey, uh, I should be very careful about just assuming that whatever the, the society around me teaches and believes and has as their morals, that it, it's a good guide. But scriptures teach us the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that's what most people do. And I, I, I believe the, the two kingdoms people are, are well-meaning people, but I think they've given in to a, a, a not surprising error of practical Americanism. And it is, as you, I think, know, it is remarkably difficult as as a Christian when you realize how deeply uh, wicked the society around you is. It is very difficult to firmly hold to the truth the scriptures teach you, to firmly pronounce those truths when you are pilloried and attacked by the society around you for disagreeing with him. And this is why the stories, the dramatic stories of Abraham or John the Baptist, and of course, our Savior himself, Jesus Christ, um, it is really hard to teach the error of the societies around you, to hold to the truth when society around you is going the other way. And there is no doubt today that the United States is a country in open rebellion against God in its explicit pronouncements, in its implicit uh, theological presumptions, in its ethics. And we should not look to the laws and governance of the United States to teach us ethics, not Christians anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's no sense of, there's no sense of antithesis to use an old, old uh, form <laughs> construction. There's plenty of sense of common grace. Uh, we hear, you know, the idea of common grace, which is, you know, a problematic idea, not without its purposes, but I, I think mm-hmm. a problematic idea. Anyway, the, the case for common grace is made well 
and convincingly. But those who, who originally made the case for common grace also made the case for antithesis. And I would say that, you know, the, the idea of common grace is one, it is one thing if it is balanced by, the, by a notion of antithesis, namely, Christians are going to be in opposition to the world. That's antithesis. There's, there's going to be a thoroughgoing opposition, and it's going to be deep, perhaps comprehensive. But the idea of common grace, the idea that, that God gives certain goods to Christians and non-Christians that they can share, um, it means something different if it's taught without the principle of antithesis as well. And what we get today is common grace with no antithesis. Well, so you've put your, 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 finger, your finger on several, several issues uh, we'll we'll start, I guess, by keeping it in house with sort of reformed, you know, Protestant mm-hmm. uh, thought in this regard, especially you know, with with our two kingdoms friends, and um, as it stands, I mean, the, it it seems to me also that with with their articulation of what they what they call two kingdoms, and uh, also kind of assert that that language was universal and therefore controlling on any conception of uh, you know reformed political life and jurisprudence. Um, is that it's actually this is something I think has become clear, but maybe not to everyone that it's it's not reconcilable with the historical articulation of many of these things that they claim to be you know, representing that uh, you, you don't see um, the, the the same treatment of course of scripture in the Decalogue by by the magisterial reformers you don't see um, right. you know this but this let me just kind under, of commentary notion of these things is. Yeah, yes, I mean, yeah, suppose please. suppose you say, which you did, that Calvin talks about about two kingdoms. Okay, mm-hmm. Calvin obviously did not conclude from that that you shouldn't enforce the uh, the first the first tablet of the Decalogue. Mm-hmm. So if if your conclusion is uh, Calvin taught two kingdoms, therefore we must teach two kingdoms, and then you make the move, and therefore uh, we should not enforce the first uh, Decalogue, uh, first tablet of the Mm -hmm. Decalogue, you're no longer talking about two kingdoms in the sense that Calvin talked about it. Right. Right. Unless you think you understand his doctrine better than he did. Right, right, right. Right. And and the, you know, I um, I think Hoffel points out, you know, Calvin also, you know, used various synonyms to regiments, you know, and and even Luther's concept himself, you know, is not... um, you know, the, to include this sort of antithesis idea, you know, that's that's a perennial truth that is given to us in Scripture as a as a, you know, something to know about your your station until Christ returns and and just how things are going to be generally. It but it is not you know does not seem to me to be Luther's object or or Calvin's or any anyone else uh, at the time to say you know the 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 separation here between the two kingdoms is between the invisible and and the um, you know, the church represents the invisible, therefore has nothing to do to do with, with things going on here. And we must leave the, the, the law and the politics to, uh, you know, the, the state or, or what have you. There's there never shall the twain meet. Rather, they taught, they are able to talk about a visible church and its role in society and its place in public morality and, and justice and the you know governing authorities uh, also cohering, even as you have this reality of the invisible church 
and the general antithesis between the world, cos- cosmologically, eschatologically, and the kingdom of Christ. And I, I think it's an important point to make that um, there are all sorts of prudential issues that you can raise mm-hmm. about uh, how should the state be involved in uh, relations to, you know, uh, worshiping God, praising God, acknowledging mm-hmm. God, um, all these kind of kind of things. Of course, there are. There are there are lots of prudential issues, and there I, I think there's all sorts of cases to be made for something like uh, American uh, disestablishment of the church. There's all sorts of cases to be made for the state being restrained in uh, taking taking positions about various theological matters. What, what's offensive, what's offensive, what is, what is really, I think, uh, misleading and throwing people into a ditch on the side of, of the road is when you say, this isn't a prudential question. It's a matter of fundamental mm-hmm. Christian mm-hmm. ethics. Um, no one can do these things because the scriptures teach us it's wrong. You, af- right. you offend God in all places and all times because mm-hmm. it, is, it is fundamental to who Christ is. It's fundamental to the gospel that you should never do these things. Right. And I have, I, I'm just not particularly interested in the debate about whether it's when it's prudential and when it's not. I'm not a legislator. I'm not a magistrate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I am someone who can read the word of God. And if you tell me that it is at all times and in all places wrong for the state mm-hmm. to, to acknowledge God, to worship God, to lead man in, in a collective understanding of his basic responsibilities to honor God, honor his name, to prevent uh, profane idolatry, uh, to preserve certain uh, opportunities for the worship of of God. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you say that's wrong at all times and all places, now you've put yourself in direct opposition to the the Word of God. You've put yourself in direct opposition to the examples of the Church through mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of its history. You've put yourself in direct opposition to uh, our our Reformed, our Protestant confessions. Uh, there is no way to sustain this position without violence, without mm-hmm. deceit and, and treachery to the word of God and, and the example of the, the heroes of our faith uh, in, mm-hmm. in the post-New Testament era. It's, it's unbelievably important that we, mm-hmm. if, we, if we want to come to a position in support of our current uh, policies in the United States, that we make clear at a minimum, that this is a matter of, of prudence. Now, my own belief is yes. the opposite, that actually the, the first tablet states minimum conditions that the state uh, needs to seek to do. And I think the better argument is that a state that fails to do these things is acting unjustly. Yeah. Now, that's not the end. Of, this yeah. is not a political argument because there's the state can do all sorts of unjust things and still have legitimacy. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not saying a state that, that does these things is not a, a true 
a true government. I, I think the modern, mm-hmm. you know, modern states do, and states always have done lots of unjust things. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the modern tendency to say that a state that does something unjust is therefore illegitimate is, is a, I think, another silly, a very destructive mm-hmm. doctrine. Um, mm-hmm. But that was another, another conversation. But in any case, um, just to, it's really important to, to, to understand the stakes we at least need to be able to say this is injustice and we need to be able to acknowledge mm-hmm. that a state that fails us in this way is acting unjustly. Mm-hmm. But yeah. long before we get to that debate, there, there's no real debate for anyone who takes the, the scriptures seriously and the example of the church seriously, that it is wrong at all times and in all places as it must be if it's an absolute moral principle for, for mm-hmm. the state to enforce uh, the the first the first tablet of the Decalogue, that, which for yeah. listeners, all I mean by that is the, the portions of the Decalogue taken as a statement of the natural law uh, that we have we all have duties to God uh, in in the various forms as they're they're interpreted. Yes, um, oh, there's 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 much there we could we could riff on for a while. Um, one, I mean, just to reaffirm a point you made earlier about a sort of, you know, Americanism um, and universalizing, you know, the sort of arrangement that we that we've come to at this point. You know, one, I, I always, uh, I'm always frustrated by even the the contemporary conceptions of these things as um, as being, as you said, absolute ethical injunctions, uh, considering the fact that the historical record of America itself is one of prudence in this regard. Of course. And if I had to, if I had to critique, uh, well, you could have many critiques, but one critique I always have of the American constitutional order, even at, at its inception, is that there were insufficient mechanisms of sort of maintenance I- inserted. Um, so that when you have such homogeneity, there's much liberality that can be assumed because there's much much assumption shared. And but that particular arrangement is a prudential one at the time because of even with the uh, level of homogeneity in one degree, there is still a significant degree of diversity. So your your arrangement in this sort of federalist policy, polity is, okay, we can have some, some leeway at certain levels of jurisdiction uh, on these questions. But there was no no abandonment yet of, the, at least with most people, the, the general idea that, you know, something, there's some kind of religious duty of magistrates. There's something to be done for the church and, and protected and so on and so forth. Um, I think James Hudson did great work on this about the nursing fathers and nursing mothers, you know, of course, uh, yeah. text from Isaiah being, you know, still very prevalent and used all the time. So that, you know, th- but it's a prudential arrangement for what you have, but it's been used by people to be absolute and not just absolute at its beginning stages, but in a sort of post-war and era 20th century conception of these things. You must have disestablishment. This is wrong. You must, you know, secularize the public square. And the the real kicker on all this is... You know, these are these are false kind of liberal conceptions of reality, because, in fact, you can't actually ever do that. It's just a question of what's filling the void. Uh, there is no you know, view from nowhere. There is no neutrality on these things. So all you're all you're doing is is replacement. There is no that that political nirvana you're after. that's always on the horizon is actually designed uh, to lead you a certain way. And it's not towards neutrality. Right. Um, so this is I mean, this the, is the, meta, you know, the, the metaphysical the metaphysical impossibility of neutrality uh, is 
is a, mm. a you know Klauser um, wrote a, I think a wonderful book on this in the Reformed uh, Dewey Verdian tradition called the Myth of mm. Religious Neutrality about mm-hmm. about the impossibility. Mm-hmm. A very good book in a a particular theoretical light. I don't know if you know Dewey Verdian, mm-hmm. but uh, yes, yeah. he, he, it's a very plain spoken Dewey Verdianism. Roy Clauser's Clauser's mm-hmm. book on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. but look, um, nobody's a liberal today. Mm-hmm. Nobody. I mean, I mean, if you look at the way our our country is run, it's there. There is no liberalism. I mean, obviously today mm-hmm. the state uh, is involved in moral direction, in teaching moral doctrines about sex, about marriage about all manner of things. Uh, there, th- th- this is not a liberal society. You, you look out uh, on, on gay month or whatever, and you know the, the homosexual flags are, are, are covering the streets and the, the airwaves are filled with moral instruction and the government is teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, living abroad as I do, you know, the, the United States embassies are flying uh, flags that are expressing pride in, in homosexual behavior. The ambassadors are going out and the state department is putting pressure on governments uh, to encourage uh, what either are or are not uh, immoral sexual behaviors. There's the, the state, mm-hmm. the government is not neutral. And, mm-hmm. um, and look, if you look at the left, they're not liberal. Mm-hmm. If you look at the right, we're not liberal. Mm-hmm. Nobody's liberal. It's over. Yeah. It, it's the, the yeah. it's still used by the left as a fig leaf. This idea of liberalism, but right. nobody believes right. it anymore. And it's right. we're at the point where where the Soviet Union was at the end, where we have a governing ideology, and uh, nobody believes in it. Yeah. And increasingly, no one even wants to pretend we believe in it. Right. No, and, and they, and I mean, sometimes people ask me because I, you know, I talk about establishment models, whatever, and there, and there are many that's, you know, you can, you can work with according to prudence, you know, what, what, what would it look like, in, you know, in America now? And I usually, I've, I'll come up with various uh, illustrations, but one, one, you know, there was a judge out of, I think he was out of a Texas district court not too long ago, that referred to, um, you know, professors, especially at Ivy Leagues, as being the priests of our democracy. And so I'll just say, well, look at the way, look at the relationship between the the regime broadly and its its state powers, its governing powers, and the leading universities. That's basically the relationship between church and state that you could you could recreate because that's how it that's, how it functions. I mean, this term yeah. cathedral so the, yeah. is a very yeah. useful a useful term yes. for the the religious dimension, the 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 real religious zeal and the theological place the false God that's being worshiped uh, in all of, of the structures of our life. And, you know, I think it was always a very bad mistake. It was a very unhealthy sign when we made statues of, of founding fathers and put them in Greek temples. Mm. I, I think mm. I, I actually, uh, not just because I'm not a fan of Lincoln, um, but <laughs> I, I think obviously if you go in the Lincoln Memorial, it refers to the building as a temple. It's in the shape mm-hmm. of a Greek temple. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it says this temple um, in the mm-hmm. memorial and in the place where a Greek God would be, 
there is seated mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln. And it's a, obviously a religious experience to go in the memorial. And you, you are intended to show veneration, if not Latria, mm -hmm. uh, to Lincoln. And uh, mm -hmm. it is wrong. And, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is bad to do that. And part of the reason why we have the wrong understanding of the Constitution is we turned it from a pragmatic mm -hmm. document, which was yeah. aimed at certain particular problems. And I think it's a pretty good pragmatic document. Mm -hmm. We turned it into sacred writ. We, we put it, yeah. we gave it a status alongside the Bible. And not surprisingly, soon in many of our countrymen's hearts, it took the place of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we, which is is amazing if you because I mean as you, as you all know the uh, the the lion's share of the Constitution is structural so the the fact that we were, have been able to raise it to that status of a non pragmatic document but rather sacred writ as you put it and to function that way I mean this and this is how it's taught in law schools now too right you spend um, maybe a few minutes on on the, the, you know, broad strokes on the articles and you jump right to the Bill of Rights and mainly to the, to the 14th Amendment, right to it, to get into substantive due process and all these things, which has been the, the, uh, the vehicle of injecting it with as, as much moral significance as possible, um, in a positive sense, of course, but, uh, but not really. Um, that's just, just how it's carried. So, uh, it, it is an amazing feat in, in that sense that we've taken it to that level, which even the, uh, you know, the, the, the drafters of the Constitution, I mean, most of them were knew it was pragmatic. And you can tell they knew it was that because they were very cynical about whether it could even function. Well, and which and means it, they clearly don't think about it. It didn't it function, at the, at it the didn't function very well, long. It led us to a civil war in mm -hmm. short order. And it had to be massively mm -hmm. reinterpreted at the end of the Civil War, yes. and then it had to be ra massively reinterpreted again after World War II. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the best scholars of legal history uh, in the United States speak of either several constitutions or several revolutions. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. It's not, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to it by this, because yeah. this is not what the, the laws are supposed to be. It is not sacred writ. If you, if you have a if you have a sense of the law as charismatic, if it is charismatic, mm -hmm. you have the wrong sense of the Constitution. It should not be charismatic. Mm -hmm. It, it should mm -hmm. be approached as law, which is to say, yeah. with respect. It should be approached as you approach your father, with respect. Mm -hmm. But it should not take the place of the respect and worship you owe to God. And it plainly mm -hmm. does today. Uh, Mm -hmm. And in the same way, you look, you can speak of the common law in two senses too. The common law tradition is great. One of the great uh, legal traditions of, of the world, plainly, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything, everything that is good about the liberties that are protected in the United States. Um, and there are many good things that we protect in the United States that we never want, want to lose. Um, but they were protected long before liberalism on entirely different mm -hmm. principles from liberalism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, in those days, it was said, Christianity is part of the common law. This is, this mm -hmm. is a dictum you can find uh, throughout the common law judges, throughout the, the great treatises. And Jefferson mm -hmm. uh, quite rightly saw that this, this principle of, of the common law, that, that Christianity is part of the common law, was radically opposed to the kind of laws that he wanted uh, in, 
yeah. in the state. And so he wrote a treatise attacking the notion that Christianity is part of the, of the common law, which is, I think, everyone should read because it's, it's feebly argued. It, it argues, mm -hmm. very few people know about this debate, which was well known yeah. in Jefferson's time, um, but was not very well known in, in, in our time. Um, to, to believe in the common law, you, you either need common law version one or version two. Mm -hmm. Version two is Christianity is not part of the common law. Version one is it is. And mm -hmm. version one produced all the liberties that you care about mm -hmm. uh, long before there was the, the, the slightest hint of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Liberalism is a heresy of the, the Christian outworking of common law one, which took many of the features which work very well and adopted them into an, a different version of the common law, which is radically different in character because it has a radically different end. And that end has slowly worked itself out in, into the destruction of important elements of, of version one. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is, the, again, these are deep historical truths. Um, they're, they're not debating points. They're not principles that you can debate of. But if, if you want to, if you want to secure yourself in the confidence of your position that our idea of law is fundamentally different than the one our founding fathers had, go read Jefferson's arguments that Christianity is not a part of the common law. Consider how he won uh, and what differences that makes for, for life today. How, how it changes our idea of, it makes possible our, a change in our idea of marriage. How it makes possible our, a change in our idea of of liberty to license all, all these the mm -hmm. role of virtue in in good law um mm -hmm. uh, it just we live in in a midst of an immense lie about the nature and character of of law and part of antithesis is hey you know christians should expect that mm -hmm. we should expect the world to be lying to us about things and it is and you can confirm that yourself you can confirm it immediately by looking at the word of God and it, it telling you, be on the lookout. They're probably lying to you about the most fundamental <laughs> to lure your soul into hell. Uh, you can look at it that way, or you can do the work and, you know, but not everybody has the time to do that. And you, not everybody needs to, but we are led by blind guides, malicious guides uh, today. And of course, if you look at it, the shape of society, uh, the fruit of of the lies that have been told to us about the nature of justice and government and our duties to God are manifest in the society that we look around at. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's a very good segue into the uh, the last question I always ask people, and uh, you've mentioned a few already. And so let's assume the person does have the time, the inclination, and the need to steal themselves in in this way. Um, now, I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, Eric, that you have, you have a great series of lectures online. Um, well, thank you. One of the most the recent, they, they are great. I haven't listened to all of them, but the one in particular on Rutherford yes. um, is, is fantastic. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend that to everybody, and I'll go ahead and steal Lex Rex you know, to tell everybody to read that, uh, both for the sake of getting in touch with the Protestant tradition and to uh, do some of the work intellectually you're talking about, getting back behind our own context 
uh, as to, to kind of refresh your mind um, and, and take it different places. But what are what are maybe some other things you would recommend to the student in this way uh, that would help them on the, on this path? You know, to to sort of think more Christianly about jurisprudence, about society and law, uh, so on and so forth. I, I think you know, a Witty's book, Law and Protestantism, is a, mm-hmm. a great starting point. If if you if you want a sense of the the way the fact that uh, Protestantism shaped the the character of modern law and that the character of modern law is unintelligible without reference to it mm-hmm. as a cause. Um, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. Witty's normative work I have I have many more disagreements with than his historical work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Witty's a great a great man, great thinker. Love him, praise God for him. But I, I, there, there are parts of his work I disagree with. Um, but the historical work, as it's represented in, in Law and Protestantism, it, Berman's book Law and Revolution is great, has its its own idiosyncrasies. But most of what's great about Berman's work can be gained from looking at Law and Protestantism, mm-hmm. and it's shorter mm-hmm. and more more powerful. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. it gives you a sense to uh, these are very deep questions on which people in good faith can disagree. And we can love our two kingdom brothers and recognize that, you know, debates of this kind have been going on a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the, the radical two kingdomers really come off the rails in relation to that historical tradition. But uh, mm-hmm. we have we have we have big enemies and we, we need to pull together. Um, yes, indeed. And, um, but that, that would be a, a work I, I recommend. Uh, also, Berman uh, wrote a book, uh, wrote an, a, a wonderful article. This is a little more challenging, uh, but relates to you on the, the birth of modern legal science uh, with Matthew Hale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you want to get into the, the way in which uh, Christianity provides us with an understanding not so much of what the judge or the magistrate, the ruler, is doing, but with respect to what the uh, the one who is providing counsel and representation in the law is doing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's I, I'm going to forget the name, but it's it's by Berman. It's called something like the birth of legal science in Hale Cook. Cook, by the way, is yes. pronounced Cook, but it's spelled Coke. Like the soda, right, right, uh, <laughs> right. People, people sometimes get confused. I, they find they find Coke, but they're wondering where the, this Cook guy is. Uh, <laughs> right. It may be it may be Hale, uh, Hale, Cook, and Blackstone, but I don't think that's right. But anyway, uh, that's a, it's a yeah. It's a three. There's three people. Yes. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. It's not Fortescue. Um, that's too too early. It's too early. It's, yeah, it's somewhere. Oh, it's 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 Selden. Selden, it? I think that's right. Yeah. Selden and yeah. Selden, yeah. who's one of the great. I mean, if if uh, the, there, there's a particular figure who invokes the the covenant with Noah great, quite a bit, uh, and, mm-hmm. and if if he had had actually the first person to do that, uh, most prominently, or the, the most prominent person to do that in the English common law tradition, is Selden. And if he had looked at how Selden had explained the, the Noahide covenant or, and interacted with it, he would have been saved from many errors, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that is a tremendous article for shaping uh, not so much. We spend so much time focused on the, the normative questions as if we're legislators. 
Mm-hmm. But the, the main questions for, for counselors, and counsel is so precious, and it's 99% of what lawyers do is provide counsel, uh, mm-hmm. of how we should, we should give people counsel and how the role of giving counsel is shaped uh, by Christianity and how it can be an expression of love and intellect um, and, and how these, how, how the profound uh, rebirth of the, the, the spirit of encounter with Christ and reliance on Christ shaped people's intellectual development at a key point in the development of, of common law self-understanding. Mm-hmm. That is a profound article. And I, I recommend mm-hmm. that to, to everyone. These are these are. I I I also would recommend. I have a series. If you go to YouTube and type in Handong International Law School, I have a series on on prayer and the lawyer. Hmm. And if you're interested Hmm. in some of these questions about how learning how to pray at the feet of Jesus Christ teaches you how to plead, because prayer and pleading are it's the same word. I mean, it's not the same word. Mm -hmm. It's it it means the same thing. I mean, you, mm-hmm. as you know, you know, at the end of a, a pleading, you include a prayer for relief. It's, it's the same thing. Yes. Um, yeah. Praying and pleading, you know, we, we stand before the, the, the throne of God and we make our, our petitions, which is what we file in court, mm-hmm. our pleadings, which is what we make in court, our prayers, which is what we make in court. Um, there, there are profound and immediate uh, legal theological lessons to be, to be learned. From, mm-hmm. from thinking about what we're taught about prayer in the scriptures and thinking about them in relationship uh, to the activities of, of a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. So those, those yes, are, those are some starting good. points I would, I would, I would recommend the last one probably is yeah. not what you wanted, but anyway, that's, that's no, 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 that's, that is, it's all, that's all very useful and very welcome. Um, yeah. I, I recall, I mean, it's, it's easy, I think to read, you know, even, even Hale's, uh, you know, biographies of, you know, so many people appreciate him of, of his, his early, it's really his conversion experience. Um, when he's, when he's a young man and, and how that, and then he's of course known for his, his piety, his general withdrawal from popular society because he thought it would, it was, it was essentially useless to him, but all these things. And, and it's easy for us to read them and consider it window dressing or kind of uh, you know, cute and quaint, but it, it's clear from reading, you know, 17th century sources that they, they saw this as part of the whole package. The reason, exactly. um, you know, it's, it's, he was, that he was known this way. I mean, the fact that he survived the tumult of the, of the, his part of the 17th century right. through various regimes, uh, is, is amazing. One of the great figures of did that. human history, I mean, particularly yes. if you're interested yes. in legal history, but you know, this is, if you find, yeah. uh, I believe Hale, there's an extant prayer that he has mm. that's wonderful. I'll see if I can find that and send it to you. I, 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 it, yeah, I, I, um, it could be. I don't know if it's included in his advice to his children or not. Um, but, I re, you know, that, that, that text made it a, around the block many oh, times. I mean, I, wonderful. I remember in Washington Irving's biography of George Washington, you know, Washington's fa- father dies when he's young. And his mother is then charged with the, you know, the education of several children. And she, and the only thing Irving mentions that she uses is Hale's advice to his children because they no longer had a father. Right. 
and you know th this man was revered and they she would just read this to them you know when they're like seven years old and stuff um so that that you know that aspect of of his piety even extended potentially beyond his influences elsewhere um i mean those were great as well but it's it's it, that was continued to be revered so it is the complete person you know in view and even the um you know if you if you read about the the ends of court and their sort of curriculum, you might say. I mean, it really is kind of a uh, an area of it's like professional discipleship. I mean, they they had to study. They had to eat together. You know, the cases. They had to eat. And, but they had to eat together. They had chaplains, and they were expected in their downtime to be reading scripture. Together. Well, nobody, you know, it's know like this, this whole whole thing. But you know, before yeah. an assize was held as a matter of law in mm -hmm. England, the assize mm -hmm. were sort of the great courts. That yeah. The law required a sermon to be preached. Yeah. These were called assize sermons, and it was an honor for a local clergyman to be picked to to uh, preach a sermon concerning law, justice, whatever he chose, to the assembled judges and lawyers. And mm -hmm. just think about what that means as your understanding of of law. That before you before the judges would enter into the the courthouse. Way the sermons would be preached in the courthouse is another interesting part of it. Before they would enter into the activity of law, uh, they would be called before God to hear His word, uh, to be directed by one of His ministers in in how the the, the proceeding should go. And many of these sermons uh, became very very famous because yeah. they they elicited a, a great the the act of preaching to judges and and lawyers and calling them. To the service of God through justice, uh, pulled out of preachers, a uh, great, great and powerful words. And, mm -hmm. uh, I one of my academic projects someday is I, I keep finding these and adding them to my collection is to publish uh, a collection of these assize sermons, mm. and so that we can be reminded of this basic practice and and the, the greatness. Uh, that that it, it drew men's souls to in the administration of of justice mm -hmm. when they did so before the throne of God, which is, by the way, mm -hmm. where you should do it. I mean, this is what you know. Jehoshaphat uh, preaches to the judges. Mm -hmm. You know, by the way, you know when mm -hmm. when you act as a judge, God is immediately judging you. He is standing there mm -hmm. in your judgments, and if you do rightly, you're okay. And if you do wrongly, God immediately judges you. Mm -hmm. And this is, there's nothing particular about Israel in this. This is what it mm -hmm. means to be a servant of God, which is Romans 13, what we know the, the, the magistrates and judges are. You are discharging a delegated duty from God when you decide a case. And mm -hmm. uh, if you do it wrongfully, and I don't think wrongfully here necessarily means mistakenly, but it, it means mm -hmm. in, in a way which is a, at war with the the impartiality and the respect that judges should should pay to the processes before them you do so as an immediate enemy of god and look judges today don't i mean i don't, I don't mean to dishonor anybody but nobody reminds anyone to think that way nobody reminds anyone of the the great augustness of the most simple act of justice as it's carried out in a public capacity and it is great. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, this is the, the high calling of, 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 of lawyers. Uh, it, is a, it is a great and terrible thing 
to stand as an officer of a court and counsel a judge about the right thing to do, because if he does it wrongly, uh, he, he, he does so in a way that, that subjects him to the judgment of God. It is a, it is a great and terrible thing to be involved in the processes, processes of the public administration of justice, because it's a sword given by God to man. And if we misuse it, uh, we, sh- we, we know that we are doing something terrible. Not because we believe in human rights, but because all of us know that, that we stand before God who knows us and loves us and has blessed us and who deserves our best efforts, who deserves our, our fealty and our respect and our, our trembling love before him. And we have lost all sense of that, all sense of public piety, uh, which is normal. It's normal in, in societies all throughout history. It's, it's Romans 1 stuff. Mm-hmm. And we've lost it as a society. And that's a, mm-hmm. that is the basis under which we are being judged right now as a society. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible to be in God's judgment as we are. Indeed. Well, that, that is a, uh, a good, if powering, powering word about <laughs> uh, where we are now. Uh, that, but it, it's, I mean, and it, this gives everyone, too, a taste of, of some of Eric's lectures and why they're, and they're so enjoyable. Um, is there, there's always, uh, to my mind, a, a, I guess we could call it a, a devotional, a spiritual component to it. It's not. Uh, so practicing what, what he preaches, I can, I can attest to from <laughs> listening to uh, much very, and it's, it's always uh, not just insightful, but, but edifying. Um, so I'd encourage everybody, we already mentioned the, you know, m- most of these are up on YouTube. Um, I'm going to have to go watch the one on prayer um, and, and everyone else should as, as well. And um Eric, where, where else can they find some of your work? Um, I don't know if you have anything you want to plug at this point. If you ever publish this this collection of sermons, I would love that because uh, I, I'm also very interested in uh, the, the public and sort of, uh, yeah, the, pu- the public-facing preaching of our forebears. I mean, I've done some work on election sermons here in, in America, very but similar, there are also yeah. parliamentary sermons. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, there is a sort of, there's a template almost that is used, but they're they're just always you know, so great. And it really makes you long for this, you know, wow, what if we, what if we still had this? Um, but if you ever publish those, I would, I would, that would be fantastic. But is there anything else you want to point people to at this point uh, that, that you're working on or they should take a look at? I, uh, I just published an introduction to uh, Christian legal theory uh, with the Christian legal society. And it's, it's a work which is in, intended to um, uh, for, for, for young lawyers who are, who are seriously thinking about how these things uh, work. They have a, a Christian legal society has a, a, a publication journal for Christian legal thought. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you uh, type in CLS and Eric Enloe and introduction to Christian legal theory, uh, that has, that has some of my, my recent thought on, on how we relate Christ to, to law as a foundation of, of our, uh, of our legal practice and, and self-reflection. Mm-hmm. So if people are interested, Excellent. In that, I will, tr- I will try to include that in the show notes. Um, so people can find it easily. Um, that's, that's great. Um, well, Eric, thank, I mean, thank you so much for, for spending time talking to us about, about these things. We could, we could go on and on. Um, 
but we will we will call it a wrap for now there we will have to have you on again sometime um, thank you brother thanks for having me on absolutely absolutely i'm glad we we're able to make it happen um to the listeners thank you of course for for joining us and tuning in uh you know keep keep checking back subscribe to the podcast so you can see the the other guests we have on to talk and um until next time god bless